A reading from the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent unto all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together as we stand. Almighty Father, we ask now uh, that you will uh, give us an insight into uh, the joy that will ultimately uh, dominate the story of history, the story of eternity, uh, despite the formidable challenges and sufferings and tears of the present. And will you give us a vision of that joy? And will you give us a taste of that joy? And will you grant us to join in uh, with the great song of heaven, even this morning? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. Uh, and uh, it'd be really helpful if you would turn back to uh, page nine. Uh, whenever you're in uh, the season of Advent, which is the four weeks that lead up to Christmas, um, we end up inevitably doing two things at the same time. On the one hand, we uh, work on the, we kind of rehearse the run up to Christmas, and didn't they do that well? Phenomenal. Well done. Um, on the one hand, you, you rehearse the story on the lead up to Jesus's birth. But on the other hand, during Advent, uh, we end up looking forward to the end of history. We look forward to Jesus's second coming. We look forward to how it is uh, that the whole story of history is going to resolve. And uh, that first reading from Revelation gives us an insight. And to set it up, I want to ask a question. And, and here's the question. 
how do you navigate the complexities of the present when we are all of us facing uncertain futures? Why would I ask that question? Several reasons. Um, one is that it seems to me that we're living in a time where uh, we face uncertain an uncertain future. I, that's always the case, right? That's just part of what it is to be human is we're never certain about what's coming next. But it seems to me that we're living in a cultural moment where that fear feels acute. Um, and I, I just take that. I mean, I think probably all of our news feeds are similar to mine. Mine is seems like it's always about, you know, hot wars, cold wars, culture wars, all those sorts of things. And and it seems like the underlying message seems to be something like, uh, we don't know what tomorrow is bringing, but it seems we are all of us scared about it. And so the question seems acute, how do you navigate the complexities of the present given the uncertainties of the future? And more specifically than that, is there a way to navigate the complexities of the moment given the uncertainties of the future and to do that with persistent and resilient joy. The second reason I asked that question is just because we're in Advent, and I was already saying that Advent asks us to look forward to the resolution of history. And Advent tells us that we are in a story with a coherent future, that there is a future that is full of joy. And so Advent asks us to to look forward and to live now in light of the future joy. And the last reason I ask that question is because our reading from Revelation chapter 5 gives us a picture of that joy. And so what I want to do is look at that story from uh, Revelation chapter 5, and I want to show you a joy that Jesus procures. It's an ultimately cosmic joy and Advent asks us to live now in light of that joy, and that'll allow us to walk through the uncertainties of our future. And I want to show you that this joy is a counterintuitive joy, and it's a costly joy, and it's a cosmic joy. Come with me into the reading. So uh, the book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John, probably around AD 96, so at the end of the first century. And he's one of the, he's probably the last living among Jesus's original 12 disciples. And everything's going badly. Uh, John is imprisoned on an island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. You can imagine uh, Nelson Mandela imprisoned on Robben Island. It's the same kind of idea. And John had spent his whole life serving the early Christian community, but now it looks like the early Christian community is falling apart. Uh, Domitian is the Caesar, and uh, um, they were very articulate presentation of uh, Caesar's a bad guy. And, um, and Domitian was a bad guy, different Caesar, but same bad guyness. And he, he had killed a bunch of Christians, thousands of them. And because of the pressure of that persecution, the churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, were beginning to capitulate. And they were giving up or they were blending in with the society around them. And in the midst of everything going wrong and a deeply uncertain future and in the midst of acute suffering, John begins to have these visions that are recorded for us in the book of Revelation. And this vision that we're reading about today is a vision of heaven. John 
is somehow in heaven. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about heaven. Many people think of it as the place that kind of you go to when you die if everything goes well. That's not what this is talking about. John's vision of heaven is a vision of the throne room of God. It's a vision of the command and control center for the universe, so to speak. And there is God on the throne, and, and that means that God is calling the shots for the universe. However, if God is on the throne and calling the shots for the universe, then it begs the question, does God have a plan for the unfolding story of history? Because certainly from John's perspective, and maybe from yours, the story of history is not going well. Is there a plan? And it turns out that there is. Take a look at verse 1. And then I saw on the right, at the, in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. Now, that scroll is God's plan for history. You can think of it as God's project plan for history, something like that. It's his plan to resolve the story of history and to fulfill his purposes in such a way that the story ends well. But as soon as we say that, it begs another question. If, if there is a plan for the unfolding of history, then who is it that's going to uh, execute this plan? Who's going to roll this plan out? And that's the question that the angel has in verse 2. John says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And John, he says, I began to weep loudly because no one was worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Why does John weep? He weeps because heaven has made a comprehensive search of the universe and no one has been found competent and worthy to orchestrate the unrolling of God's plan for history. Um, I don't know if that strikes you as something grievous and frightening, but I think we can identify with it. Um, we're, I don't know, nine or ten months away from an election here in this country. I'm not going to comment too much about it, but... Um, everybody takes a sigh of relief. But do you notice the level of fear? And there's fear both on the right and the left. Everybody's afraid. Why? Well, it, part of it is we're desperately afraid that, you know, what if we don't find anybody competent <laughs> to run the country? That's a scary prospect. And that's the fear and the sadness, the despair of this moment. Because you take that fear that our nation experiences and you ramp it up to an infinite level and you realize that this is not just about one nation, it's about, and one political term, but rather it's about all of history. It's a cosmic fear that maybe there's no one capable of running the story of history. And if that's true, then it means history is unhinged and we're all loose on a sea of chaos. And therefore John weeps because no one's competent. And again, I think this touches at some of the deep fears of our present world. Um, over the last 300 years, and at least in Western society, we've tended to have a deeply held view that um, history is moving forward, 
that there's a, a, progress, a, a progress that's happening in history and that we're moving in a good direction. And usually there's a conviction that humanity is one way or the other decisive in the unfolding story. And every, there's several different visions of how that story is going to unfold. The Marxists have a view, the free market capitalists have a view on how the story can unfold well. Um, technological humanists have another vision for how everything is supposed to unfold, but all of them are different, and yet each of them rests on the competence of humanity in one way or the other. We are the ones that have to manage it. But the problem is that certainly in the 20th century and also in the 21st century, we have slammed up against the cold, harsh realities. Things like war and genocide and political corruption and ecological crisis and pandemics. And we have slammed up against the fact that humanity is, after all, not all that competent to pull off what we need to. It's a strange thing because we're the most technologically advanced creatures we know of in the universe. And yet for all of that, we're scared to death of tomorrow because we're scared to death that ultimately we will be found incompetent. And so John weeps and so do we. Now, you say, I, I thought you were gonna talk about joy. Yeah, here, but here's the thing, it's counterintuitive joy. Because we expect, if we're going to find joy in this life, it's going to be in me or it's going to be in humanity. And what this says is it, you're not going to find it where you expect to find it. You're not going to find it in ourselves. You're not going to find it in what it is that we do. You're not going to find it in any ideology. You're not going to find it in a political leader. You're not going to find it in economic prosperity. And there's something about feeling the collapse of human competence that's a necessary requirement in order for eternal joy to break forth. So where is that joy? What does it look like? Well, take a look at verse 5. And then one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, which means look. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, stop there. The angel has good news. This is where joy starts. Everybody take a deep breath. The, the good news is we found somebody. It's a lion. It's a king. So, root of David, that's a royal title. Now, what makes a lion competent? Think with me. Teeth and claws, right? And big scary muscles. What is it that makes a king competent? Crown, swords, power. Okay, John hears that there's a lion and that there's a king. But then watch what it is that John sees. And the shift here, friends, is the center of the book of Revelation. Look at verse 6. John turns and he says, between the throne of God and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw, what is it? A lamb standing as though it had been slain. Stop there. He expects a lion, but he sees a lamb. 
a lamb who's been wounded, mortally wounded, and yet death has been undone, and he's very much alive. And it's a strange lamb. It's a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. What in the world? Seven horns means perfectly powerful. Seven eyes means perfectly wise. In other words, he's perfectly competent. But the question is, where did he get his competence? What caused him to be competent? And there, this isn't, it's counterintuitive. It's not what we expect. It's the fact that he's slain. It's his wound. It's the fact that he has died that makes him competent to take the scroll. Jesus became the great victorious lion by being the lamb who was slain, by self-sacrifice. And just as an aside, Emmanuel, this is a revolutionary view of power. It's a revolutionary view of leadership. And when you find in this world leaders who lead by mere coercive power or by bullying or whatever the case, remember this vision. And remember that bravado is thinly veiled in competence, but self-sacrifice is the path to truth strength. All right, true joy is counterintuitive because we expect it to rely on our competence, but what John discovers is that it relies upon the self-sacrifice of the lamb. But now we need to look more closely at the cost of this joy. Look at verse 9. All those around God's throne sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, lamb who was slain, to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Now stop there. The question is, why is it that the joy of heaven is so remarkably focused upon the death of the lamb? Why is joy focused on Jesus' death? I can think about it this way. The death of Christ, the blood of the Lamb, ensures a victory, it ensures a ransom, and it assures a future. First of all, it assures a victory. Um, think about death. Death, friends, is the checkmate for all human joy. And what I mean by that is that uh, if everything ends in death, then ultimately death will end everything in which we can take joy. Makes sense? But if the lamb was slain, and if the lamb came back to life, then it means that Jesus has ripped the teeth out of our greatest enemy. It means death itself has been defeated, and therefore the great enemy of our joy, the checkmate of all our joy, has been checkmated itself, and therefore there's a victory that defeats everything that can defeat our joy. There's a victory. But the blood of the lamb also means there's a ransom. Uh, the deepest sorrows of human life are all about broken relationships. And therefore, if there's going to be a joy that overcomes all the uncertainties of this world, then it must be a joy in reconciliation. And the blood of Jesus ransomed us, says heaven, ransomed us into a re reconciled relationship with God. And therefore, we can be brought into the relationship that animates all other relationships. There's a victory, there's a ransom, and there's an assurance of a future. Assurance of a future? In verse 7, the lamb, because he was slain, is able to take the scroll. 
which means the lamb who is slain is now in control of history. And if the lamb is in charge of history, and if you and I belong to the lamb, then it means that he will ensure his victory counts for us. He'll make sure that uh, our story ends well, like his story ended well, despite the fact his story ran through grief and pain and sorrow and death. It ensures a future. And when that dawns on your life, when you know yourself to belong to the lamb who's victorious over death, who's ransomed us, and who assures us of a future, it'll liberate us from a great deal of fear. It'll liberate us from crushing fear. Because if the lamb holds the scroll in his hands, and if the lamb holds the scroll of my life, then it means I'm free. I don't have to, I, I don't have to stress out. I don't have to uh, uh, desperately grasp onto control in my life. I can surrender it to the Lord, and I can live for the lamb, and I can live free, even walking through the difficulties of this life with my eyes on the lamb, because I know that despite the difficulties, despite the suffering, despite the fears of this world, nevertheless, the lamb has promised to see me through to the end and to resolve my story in such a way that I will join with the angels and say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Can you see how this leads us to a kind of joy that can walk through the uncertainties of this world? It's counterintuitive because it's not grounded in us. It's costly because it costs the death of the Lamb of God. And in that death, he destroyed our greatest enemy and he rants, reconciles us to God and he gives us an assurance of a future. And finally, the text says that this is a joy that is cosmic. Once the lamb takes the scroll in verse 7, there's this increasing cacophony of joy and praise that breaks out. First, it's those gathered around the throne room that begin to sing, worthy is the lamb. But once they begin to sing, all the millions of angels in heaven hear that song and they join in as well. And they begin to sing. And once they begin to sing, the circle goes wider still until all of creation and every creature in the universe is looking at the Lamb and saying, He is worthy to be honored and to be praised. And what that means, Emmanuel, is that this is where history is leading. This is where history, this is where the Lamb is taking us. And if that's true, it means we can walk through the moment with great hope. So Emmanuel, in the midst of this uncertain moment, in the midst of the uncertainty of your life and of my life and of our nation's life and of all the, all the uncertainty that we face, where is there a joy that can walk us through in the midst of all of this? It will not be found in me. It will not be found in you. It will not be found in anything in this world. It will only be vested in the victory of the Lamb of God. And so the call today is to lay down our grasp upon our own competence, lay down our addiction to controlling our own life, lay it down before the Lamb, look at his victory, and say, Lamb of God, I want your victory to be the animating victory of my life. And then as we walk through life, and as we walk through suffering, and as we face the things that 
break our hearts and all the suffering of this life, there we take all that suffering to the lamb who was slain. And as we lay it before him and as we meditate upon his wounds, then we'll see that the lamb of God who is in control of history is acquainted with our sorrow and he is not far from us in the midst of our grief, but he's walked through it and he is walking through it with us now. And he says, never alone, never alone. I will never, ever leave you alone. And there, there in the midst of all the pain and the difficulty and the uncertainty, there we get to defy hell by joining in the songs of heaven. Friends, when we praise the Lamb, we are defying all the forces of evil, and we are joining in with the joy that is present now in heaven and will ultimately dominate all join in with the joy of heaven and sing to the lamb who is worthy the lamb who is slain and then in the midst of that will be able to look at our friends within the church and outside the church and we will be able to share with them the good news they need to hear which is this weep no more because the lion of the tribe of judah and the root of david is conquered and he conquered by being a lamb who is slain and who will reign forevermore. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.